Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, everybody. I'm Michael Curries. Regular listeners to Raise the Line have heard many times that research into rare diseases should matter to everybody because it's led to treatments for much more common conditions that have improved and saved millions of lives, and statins is usually our prime example of that. Well, today, we're going to get into much more detail on this point with someone who literally wrote the book on the subject, Dr. Jules Berman. His 2014 book published by Elsevier, Rare Diseases and Orphan Drugs, Keys to Understanding and Treating the Common Diseases, shows that much of what we now know about common diseases has been achieved by studying rare diseases. And Therefore, accelerating progress in the field of rare diseases will lead to yet more advances affecting common conditions. By way of background, Dr. Berman served for many years as the Chief of Anatomic Pathology at the Veterans Administration Medical Center in Baltimore, Maryland. He later transferred to the U.S. National Cancer Institute as Program Director for Pathology Informatics in the Cancer Diagnosis Program. He is a past president of the Association for Pathology Informatics and has authored more than 100 science articles, and written 20 books of medical interest. Currently, he's a full-time freelance author. And thank you so much for being with us today. Very pleased to be here, Michael. So we always start first with uh, learning more about our guests and what first got them interested in uh, medicine, and in your case, particularly anatomic pathology and cytopathology. So how did you end up on that path? Uh, I was always interested in pathology. I went into medical school specifically to become a pathologist later on. Um, pathology is a lot of fun. You get to solve problems. It's like being a detective every day. And I got into pathology during the golden age when an anatomic pathologist could do everything. He could do brain biopsies one minute and then go on and look at hematology slides, dermatology slides, and um, do autopsies and have his finger in every pie. And it was a lot of fun. And, and at what point did that scope get constricted and, and why? Well, uh, it's turning out and it's reasonably so that um, patients do better when their pathologists specialize in a certain area so that they, they really know exactly how to handle the kinds of uh, specific specimens that come in. So if you're having a brain biopsy done, you might prefer to have it done by a neuropathologist rather than a general pathologist. And things have gotten specialized that way. And I sort of saw that coming. Um, when that was coming, my interests had veered off to um, computers and informatics and using large databases. So I sort of went off and uh, did that for the remainder of my career in the government. And how did you first get interested in, in the area of rare diseases and to the point where you ended up writing this, this book that I mentioned? Well, rare diseases basically are the, the home uh, turf of pathologists. Pathologists are always trying to collect the rare diseases, and that's where they get their expertise. So it came naturally to a pathologist to want to study rare diseases. But um, I always felt as though the rare diseases were the key to understanding uh, the common diseases because the rare diseases were like, in my way of thinking, they were like the purest form of disease. And they would develop phenotypes, that is, clinical expressions 
which tended to obscure their origin because there are only a certain number of ways that the human body can manifest the disease. So it was obvious to me that many common diseases actually were hiding rare diseases. And uh, I wanted to understand the mechanisms of pathogenesis where you could start off with something rare and uh, go through a number of cellular processes that would lead to a very common phenotype. Just the, the idea of pathogenesis kept coming up again and again. You know, it's something that every uh, med student was taught in their sophomore year, pathogenesis and disease, which is diseases developed through a sequence of events over time. They're not just a thing that happens. And the rare diseases have a pathogenesis which begins differently from that of common diseases, but which converges very often to the same phenotype as common diseases. And when you understand the steps that occur over time uh, leading to that uh, converged phenotype, you can often come up with ways of treating or preventing uh, the common diseases and coming up with treatments that are effective against both. And that was my keen interest. Give us an example of that. What's, what's a uh, condition that comes to mind that would illustrate that? Well, of the sort of hidden rare diseases in the common diseases, I mean, it's what, again, it's what you're always taught in your medical classes to look out for. So, you know, if cirrhosis is extremely common in the population, especially the um, population that have alcohol abuse issues. But even though cirrhosis is common, a certain number of those conditions are going to be caused by hemochromatosis, which is a rare disease. Emphysema is very common, but a certain percentage of those cases are going to be caused by alpha-1 trypsin uh, deficiency. You can mention almost every common disease, and you'll find that there's a, a variant, which is a rare disease. Um, even hypertension, I mean, a certain percentage of people with um, of a general population with hypertension will be people with Little's disease, which is a sort of hypokalemic type of hypertension. And um, whenever you look for, especially in instances where you have an uncommon type of presentation to a common disease, you're almost always going to find a rare disease. So uh, one, one study, which I thought was very clever was that the, the team had noticed that they had a number of cases of splenic thromboses. And although it's to have um, thromboses in the body is very common, to have them in the spleen is not so common. And when they looked at those people and screened them for genetic abnormality, they found that the patients that they had with splenic thrombosis had a genus kinase gene mutation. They basically had a rare disease, which is responsible for the splenic thrombosis. There's a term, inocopy, which is a disease which has a non-genetic origin for a disease that, that it's well known to have, in most cases, a genetic origin. So you have um, an example that might be pulmonary alveolar proteinosis. That's a disease as an origin in a genetic defect in the way that surfactant is handled and that 
uh, alveoli are cleared in infants. But you can see pulmonary alveolar proteinosis in uh, adults as well. It's, it's, it's seen in many different conditions, including conditions where there is dust, anything that can cause a, an amount of debris accumulation in alveoli, which the lung just can't handle well, produces a phenotype of pulmonary alveolar proteinosis. Well, when you study the uh, genetic disease, you find that a treatment for that genetic disease, um, which is a macrophage colony stimulating factor, which helps infants who have pulmonary alveolar proteinosis on a genetic basis, uh, will also help people who have pulmonary alveolar proteinosis developing because they just have too much clogged material in their alveoli because of exposure to dust. Mm -hmm. You have a, a rare disease, and you think about the phenotype that results from the rare disease, you can often find that same phenotype uh, occurring much more commonly in acquired disease. And the treatment for the rare disease can often help people with the acquired disease. And you know, we all know the story of statins that were really first developed for people with a rare hypercholesterolemia, but which is now used on, I hardly know anybody my age who isn't on a statin. Including uh, me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Botox uh, was, I think, originally developed for uh, a type of congenital rare torticollis, rhinic. Well, now it's used for a thousand different things uh, where you need to loosen up muscles. Just the way it works. Mm. So how would you characterize the uh, penetration of this awareness in the medical community? I mean, are you feeling satisfied that people get this or are you frustrated that more people don't understand this and it's not more widely integrated, let's say, into medical curricula and so forth and so on? I'm very ambivalent because uh, on the one hand, I think that the awareness of rare diseases has gone up tremendously in the last decade or so. I mean, I think, you know, the NIH in particular is much, much more aware and willing to give funding to rare disease research than it has been in the past. And of course, the Orphan Drug Act of the FDA has made it uh, much more conducive to get uh, pharmaceutical companies interested in treating rare diseases. But they, they still uh, very often, especially in the appeals for funding, miss the point almost entirely. So let's say you're uh, doing research in a very rare disease. The, the typical approach is to say, well, I, I'm doing rare disease research. Rare disease is very important. Um, an aggregate that there are many, many people who suffer from a rare disease, you know, maybe dozens of millions of people just in the United States. So we should fund this research that I want to do on this particular rare disease because of that. And they, these people, even though there are not many of them who have this disease, they, they're just as deserving of a treatment as anybody else. And that's sort of been the, the approach. And I tell you, I consider it to be the wrong approach because they're not studying rare diseases at all. They're studying a disease that happens to be rare. 
and they're asking for money that's targeted to rare disease research. What they should be doing is saying, look, this is a very rare disease and it involves whatever, uh, immune deficiency, DNA repair deficiency, whatever the, the class of rare disease it is, it's involving. And when we learn something about this class of disease and we can start to figure out how to treat people with this rare disease, we will also be learning how that process, whether it's DNA repair, immune process, or you know, um, mitochondrial metabolism, how that process works in, in a normal condition and in all disease conditions that have a phenotype that involves that process. That's the argument that they should be making. And they very seldom make that argument in grant applications. Why is that, do you think? Because they're, they're concentrating on that disease, which, you know, it's, it's again, it's, it's a very narrow focus. Everybody, especially I think today, they, they, uh, when you're studying to be a researcher, you're so focused on what it is you're researching that you often can't see how your research might affect other areas. You're not looking at the other areas. You're looking at what you're, you're studying. And people have to get out of that mindset where they're just looking at a disease. There's almost no such thing as research in a disease. I sort of grew up, uh, my career grew up through cancer research. I was actually a staff fellow at NCI before I had become a working pathologist in Baltimore. And if you were to ask somebody, you know, what they were studying at NCI, nobody would have given the name of a, of a disease. They would say, you know, I'm studying the steps in development of cancer. I'm studying how the basic mechanism of carcinogenesis. I'm studying, you know, um, regression in, in tumors. You know, so they would be studying an aspect of the biology of cancer. And things change. And now when you ask somebody what they're doing, they'll give you the name of a disease. And that's if you're lucky. I, I was actually talking to one guy who was a data scientist, very respectable data scientist, but I asked him what he was doing. And he said, well, I'm studying, and he gave me an acronym. And I wasn't familiar with the acronym. I won't even say what it is. And I said, um, well, what, what does that stand for? He said, I don't know. <laughs> I said, what do you mean you don't know? He said, well, I, you know, I'm a data scientist. They give me the data to analyze, and it really doesn't make that much difference to me what, what it is that I'm looking at. Mm. You, you can't even say the name of the disease. No. You know what organ it's involved in? No, he doesn't know that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. The conversation I had. So I, I really do think that people have got to open their minds, widen their vision. Things will get better if they do. Yeah, and sort of connect the dots. Well, it's sort of an echo of the specialization we talked about in pathology at the beginning. I mean, things have become hyper-specialized in almost every way Yeah. in medicine. And uh, part of it is probably the need to publish. You have to find something new to, to write about and all of that. But anyway, very, very interesting. Um, so you also talk about how research into rare diseases can inform prevention strategies uh, for more common diseases. Can you explain more about that? 
Yeah, again, it goes back to the idea of pathogenesis being a sequence of events that occur over time. So when you start figuring out the pathway of pathogenesis, you know, what events occur at what time, every single event becomes an opportunity to stop the progress of the disease. You know, when you start thinking about pathogenesis, and it's easiest to think about pathogenesis starting with a rare disease, because very often a rare disease begins with the root genetic cause that starts the everything rolling. You can start to identify points in the process that converge with those of common diseases. And if you can interrupt that point, you don't get a disease. You don't get the rare disease. You don't get the common disease. If you want to look at examples, I mean, you can think of rare diseases as being sentinels of, in many cases, of common diseases. One of the outstanding examples, it's from the 70s or so, uh, was that of the rare cancer, angiosarcoma of the liver, occurring in a sort of bunch of people who worked in different geographic locations, but always had the common denominator of exposure to vinyl chloride. So vinyl chloride was causing a rare disease, which was angiosarcoma of liver. But because that rare disease was picked up, you could stop people being exposed to vinyl chloride. And presumably that same carcinogen can cause other more common diseases, but you picked it up because you you notice the difference in a rare disease. You can see differences in occurrence in rare diseases that you simply can't see in a general population of disease. If you have something that increases the number of lung cancers by thousands, you don't even notice it because there are so many lung cancers. But when they saw basically a cluster of around six angiosarcomas of the liver, they deduced that there was a carcinogen loose in the environment that was causing cancer. Another example, I guess, is the, um, the, the precancers. There are many precancers that are considered to be rare, but every precancer is a step on the way to a more common cancer. And if you figure out what's causing a precancer, you're almost always going to find something which is going to cause a more common cancer. So by identifying an increase in any particular precancer, which I consider most of them to be rare diseases, um, you can have a great effect at reducing the incidence of much more common cancers. This is all making a tremendous amount of sense, even for a non-scientific person like myself. So I'm also interested in getting your take on what you see happening in rare disease research, uh, particularly because of the advancements in uh, genetics. You know, we've had quite a few guests on that are speaking in very optimistic ways about phase two, phase three clinical trials using CRISPR and, and other sorts of things. What, 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 you know, what's your take on what's happening? What's happening is wonderful. Uh, the people who are doing this research and using the new methodologies to make more rapid advances are all heroes in the medical world and should be heroes in the world in general. But I always have a but. <laughs> um, you, you have to look at it, uh, again, when you move back a little bit, 
it's often quoted that there are 7,000 rare diseases. I got to tell you, that number is ridiculously off. There are many, many, many more than 7,000 rare diseases. In fact, um, in a sense, we're inventing new rare diseases every day through precision medicine. You can think of precision medicine as something which essentially it's a machine for making rare diseases because the way it works is that you find a subset of a disease and the subset is all characterized by a specific marker, very often a genetic marker. Then they try to find a treatment for that subset of disease so that they could find a, a new sort of tailored treatment for a subset of disease picked up by precision medicine that will respond to a drug. But what they're really doing is picking out a rare disease from the common disease. It's just that the disease doesn't have a name, it just has a biomarker when, the, when precision medicine is working. You can think of it as being a machine for making more rare diseases. So there are so many now rare diseases, and we're not even very often rare, Infectious diseases are not counted. The rare environmental diseases are not counted. The rare diseases of unknown origin are not counted. There's probably, you know, like if, if I said that there were 50,000 rare diseases, I don't think anybody could prove that that's an exaggeration. So when you look at all the advances that people are making, they're making them as one-offs. So even though they're heroes and they're doing something great and they're thinking so great, it's not going to make a dent because there are too many rare diseases. It's not the right approach. And the approach that I want, the one that I wrote extensively about in my book, is to come up with a really good biological classification of diseases that essentially create related classes based on pathogenesis. So that when you have a discovery within a class of diseases, you can apply it to all the other diseases in the class. And then you can make some really good numeric progress in coming up with treatments for diseases, because then you're not just treating a one-off. You're using the one-off to find general rules for a class for class treatments. As you know, Osmosis is a, a medical education company. And one of the things we like to do is have our guests give us some direction because we like filling knowledge gaps. We like busting myths. And aside from all the other things you've mentioned already, which have been quite illuminating, um, is there another topic that you, you know, wish medical students and providers understood that you don't think they do right now? And you would say, Osmosis, couldn't you make a video about that, please? Um, I guess if I were asking uh, Osmosis to make a video, I would ask for a video on how to write uh, an NIH grant for rare diseases, uh, maybe another one on instruction on how to apply for uh, orphan drug developmental status from the FDA. Practical things. I think that people are sort of lost in knowing how to start these projects. And you, you've had a number of people, as I've listened to them, um, who've come on, who've told their story of how they've managed to, to, to move from nothing to coming up with a 
potential cures for rare disease. But I think you need um, somebody who knows how these things best work to describe the general method for applying for a, a successful grant, sort of the key things you, you want to include in a grant application for rare diseases, who contacted NIH to get some guidance while you're developing your grant, and for orphan disease uh, development status, who to talk to it at the FDA. I think those would be very useful for the kinds of people who watch the osmosis videos. That's a terrific idea. This is a, a reality once you get out in the world. NIH is so important uh, for funding things, so that's a terrific idea. Um, we just have a minute or so left, and we also like to get our guests to provide some advice uh, broadly to the learners and early career professionals in our audience about how to approach their careers. You know, what are some lessons learned in the path that you have taken that uh, you think would be valuable for them? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what. Um, is, is very seldom said, but which is very obvious, and I wish that more people would say it, and that is that you, you've got to read books. Now, I, it, it's amazing to me. I know, in, I know in the field of pathology informatics, uh, which I've you know, spent many years in after I, you know, when I was at NIH, um, people go to meetings and they, they don't have a really good perspective of um, a narrative idea of a of a field or problem. You get that from reading books, especially books, not to toot my own horn, but a single author books where this, the author has picked up sort of a theme and developed a narrative story for that theme. There's really nothing like it. And the people that I know who read books like that or stand out. They're different from people who don't read books. They, they, they have a much richer perspective on what they're doing and what's happening in their field. So I would just say, you know, go out, find some books, read them. <laughs> yeah, and, and get some help connecting the dots in this incredibly complicated field, right? Yeah. Well, that's terrific advice and a, and a good point to end on. I want to thank you so much again, Dr. Berman, for uh, taking the time to be with us today. It, it was a great pleasure. And um, thank you very much for having me. I'm Michael Carice. We want to thank you for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise the line and strengthen the healthcare system. We're all in this together. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. Mm -hmm.